Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum, we present former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Speaker Gingrich is well known as the architect of the Contract with America that led the Republican Party to victory in 1994, creating the first conservative majority in the House in 40 years. He is also recognized internationally as an expert on world history, military issues, and international affairs as he is the longest-serving teacher of the Joint War Fighting Course for Major Generals. Speaker Gingrich is an author of over 40 books. He specifically came to the Reagan Library a week ago to discuss his latest book, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, which takes readers behind the scenes of the Republican Revolution in 1994 and the rise of the modern GOP to show how we can lead America toward a more conservative, prosperous future. The book shares never-before-told stories about Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, Tip O'Neill, George H.W. Bush, and other political figures. During his visit, Speaker Gingrich sat down with Reagan Foundation and Institute President and CEO David Trulio to discuss his book. Let's listen. Well, Mr. Speaker, it's, it's especially fitting that you signed copies of your book, March to the Majority, here at the Reagan Library today. I, uh, I, I, in addition to owning and, and, uh, and, and reading the hard copy, I bought an electronic copy and I searched for the word Reagan and it comes up 149 times in your book. So it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's it, for anyone who's interested in Ronald Reagan and his legacy, it's a really important book. But I wanted to start out by asking you, how did you first get to know Ronald Reagan? Well, first of all, let me say thank you all to all of you for coming out tonight and uh, it is an honor for both Callista and me to be back here in what I think is a national treasure and a center of thinking about important patriotic values and ideas. So we're delighted to be here. Um, of course, Reagan came to political awareness in October of 1964 when he gave a nationally televised speech for Goldwater called A Time for Choosing. Now, at that point, I was a co college student and already actively involved in politics. I got involved in August of 1958. And uh, I was aware of him a little bit. Then when he began running for governor, he ran a very idea-oriented campaign. Something, one of the reasons I wrote March the Majority is the Republican Party has a long tradition of working at being stupid <laughs> and refusing to pay attention to issues and refusing to develop language. And of course, Reagan had been a Democrat and he had been a radio announcer, a, TV, a movie star, and a TV star. So he had a natural affiliation for doing all this. And I would point out, by the way, that Donald Trump spent 13 years with a primetime television show called The Apprentice. And so when he came along, I always tell the news media, if The Apprentice had come on right after uh, Downton Abbey on PBS, they would have understood Trump. But because it was on commercial television, nobody in the media had ever seen it, and they had no idea. Reagan had the same ability. So I was fascinated. In uh, 1965, began running for governor. 
For me, I think the first real breakthrough wasn't the huge victory of a million votes. It was watching, and if you've never seen it, it's worth your tracking it down on YouTube. For reasons that defy the imagination, somebody thought it would be clever for Senator Robert Kennedy to debate Ronald Reagan on US foreign policy. And it was, it was a, a remote thing. They had foreign students were going to do the questioning. And they had Bobby at one place and Ronald Reagan at another place. And it was an annihilation. I mean, first of all, just think about it. You're a liberal like, like Kennedy, and you're faced with foreign students asking you deeply, this was, remember, the Vietnam War, deeply anti-American questions. Well, you can't respond as a true American nationalist because that defies all of your liberal friends. On the other hand, you can't actually agree with whatever deeply anti-American idiot just asked the stupid question. Uh, and so Bobby was bobbing and weaving and dancing, and Reagan was just being Reagan. So Reagan said at one point, do any of you think if the Soviet Union had had nuclear weapons by itself in 1945, that you'd be free? And he had that kind of very direct, very tough, pleasant, but no question he knew what he believed. I watched that that night. Uh, by that stage, I was a graduate student. And I was just stunned. It was the best articulate explanation of America and American policy I'd ever seen. And it just absolutely shattered Bobby Kennedy, who turned after it was over and said to Pierre Salinger, never ever again put me on television with him. It is impossible, <laughs> which it was. So I was intrigued. Now, the first time I actually met him was in 1974. And I was running for Congress in the middle of Watergate, proving I had no sense of timing. <laughs> and this was in Georgia, where the Republican Party basically didn't even exist. And the state party was so grateful that somebody would run for office that when Reagan came to do a fundraiser in early October, they allowed me to escort him back to the airport, which was a huge thrill. He was just leaving the governorship. This was an earlier and simpler time. He had one uh, state policeman with him. They were flying commercial. So we go back to the Atlanta airport, and his commercial flight's an hour and a half late. And they give us a VIP room so we can be alone. And after about 30 minutes, he gets tired of listening to me. <laughs> I mean, you, just, you can just tell. It's kind of like, okay, young man, enough of this stuff. We're not going to have that problem tonight. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But he, so he turns and he says, would you like to know how I give speeches? Well, not being a total idiot, I said, yeah, I'd really like to know how you give speeches. He reaches into his briefcase, and he pulls out about 60 four-by-six cards. And each card has basically one word, or one idea. And he says, I get to a place, I look at the audience, I wonder what they'd really like to hear about, and I shuffle and I pull out about 20 of the 60 cards. And that's gonna be my speech. I then, and this was the magic, I then shuffle them so I don't know what order they're in. Wow. Which means when I'm talking from card 12, I actually don't know what card 13 is going to be, and I don't know how to make the transition. Which means I have a lot of adrenaline trying to figure out what am I going to do next. He said, now the audience feels the adrenaline. 
He said, if I gave the same speech every day, I'd be bored. If I was bored, the audience would be bored. And so I consciously want the audience to understand that they're getting a unique speech and that I don't quite know what's coming next. So both they and I are curious about what's coming next. <laughs> With three or four exceptions, one being the, when I became speaker, every speech I've given since is modeled off Reagan. <clears throat> I'll, I'll go, in fact, I had Hannity yell at me one time because we were sitting at, we're going to do the big speech in Des Moines. And Hannity was very nervous because it wasn't his thing. And I, I turned to him just before the speech and I said, can I borrow your pen? And I pulled out a napkin and I wrote six words or seven words. And I said, here, I'm, my speech is ready. And, and then I talked for 45 minutes off, off seven words. And he said he hated it. He, says he, couldn't, he just couldn't imagine doing it. All of that came from studying Ronald Reagan. You, you used the word tough just now in, in, in describing him. And in the book, in, in March of the Majority, you said, quote, despite his perennial optimism, he was still incredibly tough. And he had an incredibly tough team. We did not always go along with Reagan's efforts. We fought him over military reform, tax issues, and a few other efforts, unquote. So despite you, the differences that you mention in the book, Republicans on the Hill and President Reagan were ultimately able to be very constructive and move the ball forward. President Reagan was also famous for the 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. Uh, I'm curious, what advice do you have for Republicans today on how to work together, including by working through differences, to achieve results for the American people? Well, that's a big jump. Um, I, mean, I mean, first of all, Reagan was an astonishingly unique figure. Uh, he was a genuine movie star. He was stunningly attractive. He had absolute control because he was an actor. Uh, when uh, the last day he was in office, uh, he was interviewed by a reporter who said, I'm curious, what do you think is the one characteristic you have that no other president had? And he said, knowing how to be photographed from every angle. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so he was always, and, and I think this is, a, this is a part of what made Reagan so complicated. The only person who understood Reagan at all was Nancy. His kids didn't, his staff didn't. Reagan was somewhere inside himself. It may have been because his father was an alcoholic. We don't know what the mechanisms were. But he had built, much like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he'd built this ability to be totally positive, totally pleasant, even when you made him really angry. And he then might later on make sure that you didn't exist anymore, but it would be without him having done anything that would involve sweating. Just something would happen. Uh, and I think that Reagan had thought very deeply about the truth. I mean, if you read, and it's always worth going back and rereading, uh, A Time for Choosing, he's really outlining what he believes is the truth. And because it resonated with about 70 to 80% of the American people, 
it cut through normal politics. And so there's a great story, uh, which I've always treasured because I'm, I'm very skeptical of Republican consultants in general. Uh, and I think that they're a major part of, part of the party's problem because they don't know very much, they don't think very deeply. And there's a, uh, story, a true story that Reagan's starting to run, it's 1965. And they've, this is back before actors are in politics and there's a real question of, you know, can, can an actor really be governor? You may remember the famous story that somebody went to Jack Warner and said, Ronald Reagan for president. He said, no, no. Jimmy Stewart for president, Ronald Reagan for best friend. <laughs> you know, and that was, so this whole sense of, you know, casting. And so they decided you needed to do town hall meetings. And they prepared, classically, an entire shoebox filled with facts. So you could ask him a question, it was number 17. You know, and, and being a professional actor, it probably took him a half day to memorize the entire shoebox. And so he goes to the first town hall meeting. The first question out of the audience is, what are you going to do about the radicals at Berkeley? Which was not in the shoebox. <laughs> so Reagan, being Reagan, told him what he would do, which was pretty aggressive and direct. The audience applauded. Next town hall meeting. First question out of the audience. What are you going to do about the radicals at Berkeley? He gives him an answer. He goes back to, to the uh, consultants who were, who were truly the most famous consultants in the Republican Party in California. And he says, uh, you know, we don't have an answer in the box. And they said, well, Berkeley's not an issue. And he looks at him and he says, guys, if the people think it's an issue, it's an issue. And it was that ability, much like Lincoln, and, and candidly, one of the things that Trump has going for him, is this notion of actually listening to your customers, which Reagan had done all through his movie career. Uh, he, he once said that Time Magazine, or the New York Times would attack him, but it never bothered him because his entire movie career, they would pan almost all of his movies except one, King's Row, where he lost his legs. Um, and all their other movies, they sort of said, you know, were lightweight, et cetera. And, and the truth is, Bedtime for Bonzo is a little bit light, uh, but, but this is a guy who could carry off having a chimpanzee as a co-star. Um, but Reagan said he'd figured out that the public liked it. They bought tickets and they bought popcorn. And so he had a career doing another movie. And so he didn't actually care what the New York Times critic thought. And there was great training for becoming president because Reagan, like Thatcher, would do what he believed. And if you didn't like it, that was all right because he wasn't trying to convince you, he was trying to convince history. So I don't know if that's at all useful. No, it is. So let, let's fast forward to today. Uh, obviously, we are less than a week out from the Iowa caucuses. We've got the New Hampshire primary coming up uh, shortly thereafter. You yourself were a 2012 Republican presidential candidate. Do you have a reaction to Governor Chris Christie saying that he's suspending his campaign? And how do you see the race taking shape here at this, this especially important moment? Well, I mean, Clist and I spent a lot of time in Iowa where she'd gone to college. Uh, I can promise you that Iowa, about this time of year, does not resemble California. Uh, <laughs> they are expecting a potential snowstorm on Sunday and that the weather will drop to six degrees Monday night. Now, first thing to remember about Iowa is it is a unique caucus state. It's not a primary state. 
In a primary, sometime during the day, you drop by, you vote, it takes 12 minutes. In Iowa, you go about seven o'clock in the evening and you can be there for three or four hours. And so you've got to really be dedicated. And if it's six degrees, you have to really be, I mean, even for Iowans, six degrees will be cold. And 25 is not, but six is. And the question then will become, who cares enough to bundle up, drive to the fire station or the school or wherever they have their local precinct and spend three hours? So it's a much more complicated dance than a primary. Uh, my personal guess, and this is all a guess, I mean, I don't care how many polls you look at, until real people show up, you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Because it really, my, but my guess is that Trump will win probably with more than 50% of the vote. Uh, my guess is that Nikki Haley may come in second, but the truth is that DeSantis has a bigger organization than she does and has been at it longer in that state. Now, <clears throat> having said that, uh, let's assume that there are two possibilities. Let's assume it's Trump first, let's say 52, and, and Mickey say, Nikki at, say, 18, and DeSantis at 17. She will then be proclaimed the winner by the national news media. <laughs> because she will have gotten past DeSantis, which will give her a boost going into New Hampshire. On the other hand, if DeSantis comes in ahead of Nikki, <coughs> it'll be trickier for the Washington Post and the New York Times and ABC and so forth to explain that she's the wave of the future. I think she has a shot at winning New Hampshire. And the reason is New Hampshire has a unique principle that if you do not register as a Democrat or a Republican, so if, you, if you're basically not undeclared, you can vote in either primary. There will be no primary for the Democrats. And so there's been a huge effort to convince people who are not Republican to vote for Nikki. Trump is carrying Republicans in New Hampshire by almost an Iowa size margin. He's, he's ahead, say, with 53%. But he's losing, because again, this is the Northeast. This is the most secular state in the country, according to Gallup. The governor hates Trump. The governor's brother, who used to be a senator, hates Trump. And the governor's father, who used to be governor, hates Trump. So the biggest family machine in the state is actively working to beat Trump. So I think the odds are close to even money that Trump might lose. Well, he might win anyway because of the sheer momentum and, and the, the ferocity with which he campaigns and the fact that they're about to educate Nikki in the art of being uh, a serious threat, which is very different than being an unknown person allowed to go out in the field and play with nobody bothering you. And they got enough stuff on her that it'll make the next week interesting. Let's, let's, but, but let's assume two futures. This may be a longer answer than you wanted, but- Carry on, but it, this but is it's, great. But, but it's out of control now, so you might as well relax. Uh, I was relaxed since the beginning. So, great. so let's assume one of two futures. Uh, Trump loses, Trump wins in Iowa. I mean, in New Hampshire. If Trump wins New Hampshire and Iowa, it's over. He is the Republican nominee two weeks from now. It's just mathematically from that point on, he just gets stronger when you get out of those two states. Now let's say that Nikki beats him in Iowa, beats him in New Hampshire having lost Iowa. They have to go then to South Carolina. 
Now, South Carolina is her home state. The problem for her is that as governor, she made so many enemies that there was a huge anti-Nikki faction in South Carolina. And, and I know of no evidence that she can come within 20 points of Trump. So then she loses South Carolina. Well, guess what that means? Donald Trump will be the nominee. So Trump is probably going to be the de facto nominee either after New Hampshire or after South Carolina. He'll be the de jure nominee, meaning he will literally have enough delegates pledged to him by the end of Super Tuesday. I think the odds on that happening, nothing in politics is stable, nothing in politics is guaranteed, but the odds on that are 90% or better, that he'll, by some time in March, he'll be the, he will have the delegates to be the nominee. That's where we are. Fascinating. <laughs> in that context, I, I invite you to elaborate on something you said two nights ago on Laura Ingram's show. It was really uh, striking coming from you. It was, you. You said you were speaking about, um, what the, about the current administration and the prosecutors and judges that Donald Trump is facing. You said, quote, what you're dealing with is a team that believes in the rule of power, not the rule of law. And then you, you, you subsequently said, I am genuinely worried for the country really for the first time in my life. So very powerful statement. Could you please elaborate on that? Sure, and it, and it seemed to shock Laura more than I meant for it to, um, because I, I just think it's a fact. Um, you have a system on the left, and I, I'm doing a whole series at the American Spectator, uh, going back to the 1960 and coming up to sort of lay out how we got to where we are. And I'm now in the middle of, of doing, I do an article a week, and I'm now in the middle of doing a whole series on Watergate. Because if, if you look at Watergate in the context of what's happened to Trump, it becomes a totally different story. It actually is the, the, it's the trial run of the establishment destroying somebody, who, by the way, got 60% of the vote, carried every state except Massachusetts, and nothing he did was as illegal as things that John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson had done. Nothing. And the people who prosecuted him knew it because they were part of the Justice Department under Bobby Kennedy doing the things that they knew were illegal. But the, the, the need to destroy Nixon, because he was the first great threat. And they succeeded. And then we went back to sort of politics as usual. And while Reagan was extraordinary, Reagan was never a direct threat to them. He was a real threat to communism in Moscow. He was not a threat to communism at Stanford. And so the result was they could, they could tolerate him. They didn't have to go all out to try to destroy him. Now along comes Trump. Trump is a genuine threat to tear apart the old order. And the old order wants to survive. So they've adopted a position which really begins with the Clinton campaign buying the Russian document, which they knew was a total lie, and the FBI covering for the, that document and leaking it then to the New York Times and the Washington Post, both got Pulitzers for publishing total lies leaked to them by the federal government illegally. Now that's, not, that's 2016, and it's been going on ever since. So now you get down to where are we today. You have in New York, the astonishingly dishonest trial for fraud where the Democratic Attorney General wants $375 million 
in a case in which there's not a single victim. Not a single person has said they were defrauded by Donald Trump. None, zero. But it doesn't matter because you have an anti-Trump left-wing judge in a case which doesn't get a jury and the judge is clearly going to rule against him. Now, he'll eventually get knocked out on appeal, but think about the insanity of this. I mean, how do you have a case for fraud if there's nobody who was defrauded? Well, you have it because they want to destroy Trump. Then you go to, Florida, to my former district in, in Fulton County, where we've learned in the last two days, to the extraordinary confusion of the Democrats, that the district attorney was apparently using public money to pay for her boyfriend, who was then taking her on trips, which is called fraud and theft, and is a crime. And so now this great heroine who is going to save us from Donald Trump probably turns out to look like a crook, probably gets disbarred, and that whole case probably disintegrates. Well, you can imagine on the left that this is a very bad moment. <laughs> I mean, I mean this, is, this is worse than watching Joe Biden try to stumble through a meeting. <laughs> then you have the, the most serious case. You have a radical judge, genuinely radical. Her, her father was a communist who has a radical U.S. attorney who had been rebuked by the Supreme Court in the past for framing a public official illegally in, a in the District of Columbia where 19 out of every 20 votes was against Trump. So you tell me how they're going to get a jury pool. And their goal is to put him in jail. Literally. I mean, <coughs> if they can get to the right place, they will have him in chains. And their hope is that if the American people see this guy in chains, they won't vote for him. Now, what's happening, of course, is because they've gone to overkill, I mean, you get to do one of these, but you do three or four or five of them, people get the joke. What they're likely to have, I think, is an explosion of outrage across the whole country on a scale we have not seen in our lifetime. Because people are going to just say this whole thing is rigged, uh, you know, it's absurd. Uh, but the danger is that they have the power of the government. And I would not be shocked. I mean, they are so terrified that I would not be shocked to look at them finding some way to try to... And a number of states now have expanded the emergency power that governors have, supposedly in response to COVID. But you go to California or to Michigan or a number of other... All of them are blue states. And you, you can imagine a circumstance where all of a sudden the election is suspended or the election occurs only with mail-in ballots or some other device. I mean, these are not stupid people. And they are in an absolute civil war to retain power, despite the fact that every day that goes by, they lose more people. I mean, the average American, you can see this in New York, for example, where people figured out yesterday that their children were being kicked out of school <clears throat> so the school could be turned over to illegal immigrants. Well, it turned out the parents in that neighborhood weren't happy. This is happening all over the country. And you see it, in, I mean, yesterday there was a poll, day before yesterday, there was a poll in Michigan that Trump beats Biden by eight points in Michigan. Now, if I were a Democrat, that would terrify me. And the question the left will ask is, okay, if we can't win the election, how do we do it? Not, 
you know, can we arrange for a really cool inaugural? Uh, so I, I, I am genuinely concerned. I don't have an answer to it, but I think at least the American people should be aware that they're dealing with a government which is lawless and which, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, one last example. They announced last week that they are tracking a thousand people who were near the Capitol but didn't go in it. Now, remember all the riots we had in 2020? Remember all the people who burned down buildings, who mugged people, who on a couple occasions killed them? Remember that none of them were particularly tried? Because after all, they were pure of heart. <laughs> and on the left. Well, now they apparently, and, and I'm trying to make sure that the House is actually investigating this, they've apparently been recruiting Americans to hunt down and find the people from photo identity who might have been near the Capitol. I mean, this is like the East German Stasi. This, this is the whole notion <coughs> of solid communism. You know, let's make sure that your neighbor's okay. And by the way, if, you're, if your mom and dad aren't okay, if you'll, if you'll turn them in, we'll reward you and make you a hero of the state. Uh, and this is, this is I'm frightened because as a historian, this is scary stuff. This is way beyond anything we've ever seen in this country in the past. More from a Reagan Forum with Newt Gingrich after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan Forum with New Gingrich. Continuing the concerns, let's look beyond our borders. So as you may know very well, when Speaker McCarthy came here to the Reagan Library with President Tsai of Taiwan, within a few days we were sanctioned. The Reagan Library was sanctioned by the People's Republic of China. Okay, so you can be proud of it, put it on the wall. But I, I actually I mean, put it in my bio now. I don't know that you should go around boasting just because you managed to get the Chinese Communists that mad at you, but I think it's a badge of honor. We, all jokes aside, we were very proud to stand up for democracy right. and self-determination, and if people didn't like it, to hell with them. Uh, yeah. One of your 43 books was Trump versus China, America's Greatest Challenge. So I wanted to ask, how do you assess the, stat the status of U.S. competition with China? And what does the president and the Congress, what do they need to do? What does American society need to do to live up to the challenge of a China which is engaged in an active genocide against the Uyghurs, uh, a China run by the Chinese Communist Party? Well, I'm going to answer it at a couple of levels. But let me first just say that, that I'm really delighted, and this is pure serendipity, that my co-author, Claire Christensen, is here tonight, and she helped write the book on China, and she's very smart. <laughs> Let me say first, I think when, when I, if I take my concerns about America domestically, which, which also includes the collapse of its bureaucracies, the collapse of its schools, a whole range of things, illegal immigration, and then I add to it China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, et cetera, and, and, and 
radical Islam. Uh, I think we are in the greatest danger we have been in since Christmas night, 1776, when Washington crossed the Delaware in, the, in an icy river with a third of his troops wearing burlap bags around their feet because they didn't have boots. And I, I mean this literally. There are so many things that could go wrong that could, could involve nuclear war, that could involve other things happening. <clears throat> and you have an administration so utterly, totally incompetent, or as some of my friends say, when you have an Iranian Chinese dominated administration, they're acting perfectly rationally. They're doing exactly what you think an Iranian Chinese American administration would do. But I find it very scary. And then when you learn that the Secretary of Defense can be missing for five days and nobody at the White House noticed. Uh, now, I mean, it's one thing to say the President didn't notice because I'm sure there are long days when it's very confusing to him. But <laughs> the entire White House didn't notice that they didn't have a Secretary of Defense. I mean, you th we live in a really dangerous world. And these people range from incompetent to weirdly biased against the United States. And that's what we're up against. So now, but here, here is the amazing reality. And we're going to get around to the pony story, which, which will explain this to people. We are in a situation where if we don't lose in the very near future, we will pull away from the rest of the planet again. Remember, Kaiser Wilhelm had contempt for us and thought us entering World War I didn't matter until we finished crushing him. Hitler and the Imperial Japanese didn't really think we could take them on until it didn't matter. Uh, Khrushchev said he would bury us. There's a great story that when he flew to the US for the first time, he looked out the window at New York City from his airplane and he saw all of these cars and he said, isn't that amazing? They've tried to deceive me by bringing all the cars in the country to New York. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you, you know, in, in the mid-1980s, there were a series of books on the emerging superpower of Japan, Japan is number one, et cetera. And people forgot that Japan's about the size of California, but has more mountains. I mean, there's not enough of Japan in the long run to compete with us head to head. And they didn't. Um, so here's the problem for China. The one-child policy, which for 40 years was an effort to control population growth, meant that you have an inverted pyramid. You have two aging parents and one child who marries another child who's the product of another two parents, and then they have one child. And what then happens is you have the most rapidly aging population in the world. And it turns out that Chinese women, much like Korean and Japanese women, once they figure out they don't have to get pregnant, don't. So you have a collapse in fertility that is breathtaking. It is possible, <laughs> the, the current projection is that by, nine, by 2070, China will have dropped from a billion 400 million to under 500 million. Now, think about what that means in terms of buildings, towns, infrastructure. There are whole cities 
that will never be occupied. And think about what it means in terms of economic competitiveness. Now, there's a secondary part. Uh, dictatorships have huge advantages for very short bursts. But in the long run, the corruption, the bureaucracy, uh, the fact that, in the, that the market is ultimately dramatically smarter than the bureaucrat, all of those weaken a dictatorship. We're entering, I think, the largest revolution since the combination of chemistry, the internal combustion engine, and electricity. And that's the artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence revolution. If you were to say to me, where do I think the center of innovation will be? It'll be here. And it'll be here in part because despite every effort of Obama and, and Biden, we don't have a government strong enough to screw us up. And so people, you know, one of my favorite Americans, and this is an argument in favor of legal immigration, and we're doing a documentary series right now called Journey to America about people who come here legally and make the country a better country. Well, one of the great American innovators is Elon Musk, who of course is not an American, except he's now an American. Well, there's no other country in the world that has this capacity right. to say to people, if you have a really good idea, why don't you show up Tuesday and make a couple billion dollars and you know, we'll now declare you're, not, you're an honorary American. The number of bright people who are starting to invent the application of artificial intelligence, <laughs> and, and in particular, the number of people who are at the cutting edge of artificial general intelligence, which is a dramatically bigger breakthrough. I guarantee you, we will break through entrepreneurially at levels that the Europeans can't imagine and at levels that the Chinese can't match. So my guess is, if we are not defeated in the next 10 years, that we will have pulled away so dramatically from the rest of the world that we will have a reemergence of the world of 1946 in which on almost every front, and I'll just close with one example which is related to Elon. SpaceX, and, and, and I was one of the two congressmen with Bob Walker, who helped launch the concept of reusable rockets. And Musk broke through and figured out how to do it. SpaceX this year will launch more satellites than China by itself. And it's accelerating. And if they get the Starship to finally work, which has 36 rocket engines, and it'll be the largest rocket ever built, they will start putting 250 to 500 people in space and then have a reusable rocket come back down so you can refill it. If that starts to happen, our ability to pull away, people will look up again 10 or 15 years from now and go, you know, I always knew the Americans were going to do it. And at that point, frankly, much of our current paranoia and malaise and anger and sense of defeat will have disappeared, and we'll just go back to being Americans. We are going to transition to audience questions in just a moment, and, and a reminder that questions end in a question mark. Uh, but uh, let's, let's do that segue by invoking the pony story. Okay. What can you tell us about it? And Ronald this, Reagan. And this tells you a lot about me, and you may remember being there for this. Where I, I was only a sophomore, Reagan had been elected, and about 90 of us, if I remember correctly, are invited down to the White House one morning to sort of get to know the president better. And we're all very excited, because you know, he was a genuine movie star, and because he had led a revolution 
that was extraordinary in terms of, he carried more electoral votes against the incumbent president than any president in history. Uh, and people, you know, he, we carried the U.S. Senate when nobody thought we could. And I actually worked with the Reagan team to develop the first contract with America and the first Capitol Steps event in the late September of 1980. So we go down there, and we're all excited, and Reagan comes in, and he starts talking, and then he says, I, I want to share a story because I think it'll help you understand me better. Well, of course, we're all leaning forward. He said, there were these parents who had twins, and the twins were the exact opposite. One twin was a permanent pessimist. No matter what happened, they just felt terrible. The other twin was a permanent optimist. No matter what happened, they felt great. And so the parents talked about the fact, this, this is wrong. I mean, they got to adjust to reality. So they came up with a plan that at Christmas, the pessimist would get a room filled with the best toys made. And the optimist would get a room filled with horse manure. And they would learn from the reality that, in fact, life could be good even though you're a pessimist. And you aren't always going to get what you want, even if you're an optimist. So that morning, they send the two kids in. They wait about an hour. They go into the room with the pessimist. And the little kid is sitting in the middle of all these fabulous toys, crying. And they say, remember, this is Reagan talking. They say, what's wrong? And the kid starts pointing, that, that toy's going to break. That toy's going to be stolen. That toy's going to have the battery burn out. And he goes around and explains how every single toy is going to be a disappointment. They look at each other and shrug, go back out, and they walk next door. And as they open the door, which is a room filled with horsemen, they see this little kid running up and down the room, throwing horsemen up in the air, yelling, wee, wee. <laughs> and they said, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for the pony. <laughs> we reacted the way you did. And Reagan looked at us for a second. He said, just remember, I'm always the guy looking for the pony. Fantastic. Okay, we are going to go to questions. Please raise your hands. And all the way in the back, right over there. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the evolution of the Democratic Party from Bill Clinton, who, for all his flaws, actually, um, was willing to, I think, meet Republicans somewhere in the middle to the party of Obama and Biden. Well, this is actually the whole purpose of my writing this series at the American Spectator, which I have found discouragingly educational considering I lived through all of it. And now that I'm going back and digging up source material, the, the real break point in the Democratic Party is 1972 and the nomination of George McGovern. And at that point, the radical left has taken over. And Theodore White captures it perfectly in his Making of the President in 1972, when he writes that the liberal ideology had become a liberal theology. And therefore, you could no longer negotiate. You could not find a, a middle ground. 
And if you watch the way it was evolving, uh, all of the energy, all the aggressiveness was on the part of these younger people. And to some extent, the way in which the draft had worked meant that you had, particularly in, for example, uh, theology schools, people who got out of the draft who were very anti-war and who were now getting graduate degrees. And there was a very conscious effort, uh, which actually could be kept, carried back to Students for a Democratic Society meeting in Michigan in 1961, uh, that, they would, that the campuses, not, the, not in the Marxist sense, the working class, but the campuses were the place to change society. And that if you could turn the campuses into centers of radicalism, that eventually they would turn the rest of the society. And so you had this gradual growth. Clinton, in a funny way, was an anomaly. Uh, he had lost the governor. He won the governorship as the youngest governor in the country in 1978. He lost it in 1980, and learned from that the lesson: you didn't like losing because you gave up the mansion, the state police car, the airplane, and the salary. Uh, he regained it in 82, and he was—he's he, in Arkansas, so he, he's in a naturally conservative cultural environment, dealing with a conservative Democratic state legislature. And he's used to wheeling and dealing the way governors do. So he comes, and, and he spent time in the late 80s trying to create a centrist democratic organization. And they couldn't succeed because the money from the billionaires and the money from the radical unions, uh, the service employees unions, a good example, were all in the teachers' unions, which, which are the center of radicalism in America. And the teachers' unions spend about $5 billion a year on politics. And so what you ended up with is a party which is, at every step, it's gotten further to the left. Now, what happened was, in 94, when we did win, and we were totally standing on Reagan's shoulders when we won. I mean, the people need to understand that. And I wrote this book in part because almost nobody in the current Republican Party has a clue how Reagan did it and how we did it. And this book's designed as a workbook to say, look, you know, this can be done anywhere, even in California, uh, because it works. So anyway, one we won in 94. They had a huge fight. And, and we were following a principle that Lincoln had articulated when he said, with public sentiment, anything is possible. Without public sentiment, nothing is possible. And if you read a small book um, by Tom Evans called The Education of Ronald Reagan, which is Reagan at... Um, the, uh, at General Electric for eight years. You will see that Reagan, and I, I'd worked with Reagan a long time, I did not fully understand how disciplined and strategic he was until I read this book. And Reagan understood if he had the American people, he could then force the Congress to change. He used to say, my job is to turn up the light on the American people so they will turn up the heat on Congress. And that's the model we followed. So if you look at the contract with America, every single item is 70% or better. So here's Clinton. We want balanced budgets, 92% issue. We want welfare reform, 92% issue. I mean, you, could, you can go down the list of what we were doing, and over and over again, Clinton is faced with this choice. Do I find a way to compromise with Gingrich and the Republicans, and I might get reelected? Or do I go to the left and oppose them? And every time, he came down with us. Now what that led to was, the left hated him. 
I mean, one of Hillary's problems, the reason she lost to Obama in 08, is that they didn't hate him because of Lewinsky. They hated him because every time it mattered, he sold out. And so the left had gotten bigger and stronger. The network, whether it's George Soros or the Ford Foundation, or you can just go down the list. The amount of money on the left spent radicalizing America is unbelievable. And that's how we got to where we are today. So Obama is the most radical president in American history until you get to Biden, who is basically Obama's third term. And they have infiltrated into the government and they have supported at the universities and in the corporations and in the news media a radicalization that I would have thought impossible if you'd asked me 20 years ago. And that's where we are. Gordon Sondland. Mr. Speaker, um, do you share my concern <coughs> about the red herring that's being floated that we can't walk and chew gum at the same time vis-a-vis <coughs> Israel and Ukraine? And this is the first time in my life that I've seen the Republican Party at a real crossroads, particularly with two existential conflicts going on live while we're debating whether or not to win or lose in both venues? Well, I'm, I'm concerned, but I'm not, I mean, first of all, the scale of resources it would take for us to be decisive uh, in either of those places is trivial. Uh, I mean, the amount of money, the, the Israelis don't need a huge amount of money to finish destroying Hamas and to communicate sincerely uh, with, with Hezbollah. Uh, and if we, you know, when, when Reagan had one ship in, 19, in 1988, he had one ship in the Persian Gulf that hit an Iranian mine. They then launched an operation which destroyed half the Iranian Navy. Operation Praying Mantis. Yeah, Operation Praying Mantis, which was sort of our way of saying, gosh, you got our attention. Now, we've had over 100 attacks on Americans in the Middle East by Iranian pro proxies and done virtually nothing. And, and this is a, the, the number one problem in our current foreign policy is, is, is Biden and his appointees and the degree to which the Iranians have penetrated the American government and the Chinese have penetrated the American government. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's not about how much power do we have. Second, when you have 8 million people cross your border illegally and you have 100,000 people a year dying of drug overdose and you have schools that can't teach and you just go down the list, to then turn to the American people and say, but what we're really concerned about is two countries several thousand miles from here, doesn't work. What you have to say is, we're going to fix everything at home and by the way, we're going to tidy this stuff up. And remember, Trump was very much like Reagan in his first term. I mean, Reagan built up the military, but he didn't use it. I mean, he was very careful. He, he, he went into Grenada, which is sort of overkill. He briefly went into Lebanon. We lost 250 Marines, and he pulled out because he understood you get sucked into trying to dominate Beirut, and you will be in a long-running bitter war, which Bush never understood in either Afghanistan or Iraq. Grenada was the only use of ground troops. In yeah, and, that, and actually... I have a friend who was in the planning meeting with the president the day after the Marines had been killed. And the first reaction of the Pentagon was, gee, maybe we shouldn't take this risk. And Reagan said, no, that's exactly wrong. This is the moment we have to prove we can do it. And so it actually drove him 
to take more risk in Grenada. But again, look at Grenada. Grenada is a handful of Cubans on an island around which we have absolute naval superiority. So you, we, you might, you could be a little sloppier, could not quite be the Clint Eastwood movie, but we were gonna win in Grenada. But you didn't see Reagan go into Nicaragua. You didn't see Reagan go into Cuba. What you, you occasionally saw him aid, aid allies in Angola or elsewhere, but they were always proxies. And the reason was simple. Reagan understood that the American people will support a really strong military and they'll support a really short war. They will not support a long war. And we, if any doubt we had about that, was finished in Vietnam. And which actually Sun Tzu warned us, there are no good long wars. So my view is, I'm, I am for, look, I am for defeating Putin in Ukraine. I'm, and I think it's very important to frame it that way. If you go to the American people and say, should we let Putin win, they'll say no. If you go to the American people and say, should we help the Ukrainians, they'll say, I'm not sure. Because they're two different issues. I am absolutely for the Israelis having the resources to defeat Hamas, which they mostly have with the amount we're talking about, it's very small. But I believe the application of American combat power against the Houthis, who, who right now are threatening to blockade uh, the Red Sea and the, Egyptian, and, the, and the Suez Canal. I mean, the economic damage they're gonna do to the entire world, this is a bunch of people hanging around with, a, with, a, with Iranian money and Iranian weapons who collectively are about as incompetent as a bad unit of the Connecticut National Guard. And, and, if, and if we can't, if we don't have the sheer power to take out the Houthis and, and do it in a way that says to the Iranians, you're next. The other thing, frankly, we ought to be doing is saying to the Iranians, for example, every time X happens, we're, we're seizing an Iranian oil tanker. And if it gets bad enough, we're taking out your major refinery. So if you really want to play this game, we'll play it. We don't want to play it. But if you watch, again, what, what drives Americans crazy is an administration so incompetent that it can't get the job done. This is what eroded George W. Bush. Frankly, the great breaking point in Biden is not just that we left Afghanistan, but we left Afghanistan so incompetently that it was a humiliation. And so I, I, I'm, I'm not worried in the long run. The American people will ultimately talk it through and they will say, we are gonna stop Putin, and they will say we're gonna make sure terrorists get killed, uh, but they're gonna say also, with the current administration, why would you believe that they can do anything except waste your money? And I think that's a huge problem in terms of where we are. One more question. See one right here in the front. Hold on. Wait, please wait she's, for the microphone. She's running up to you with the microphone. The entire audience is eager to hear your question. Simple question. New, you mentioned the left a couple times. Who is the left? I have read the congressional, congressional directory. There are only Republicans and Democrats elected. And why is anyone worried about the left? What control do they have? And why isn't something being done to tell the American public who they are? Well, I think you can say the, the left is basically a function of attitude. And so it's a, it's a, you, can, you can talk to people and find their attitude. If they are essentially anti-American, if they believe there should not be any borders, uh, if they in fact think that uh, you shouldn't lock up criminals because it makes them feel bad. Uh, I mean, just go down a list. You, you could build a list of questions and go to Berkeley. Huh? How do the voters know and why do they think 
Well, that's our job. I mean, that's our job, and I think we're trying to work pretty hard right now to get across the idea that, that you know, a good example is, is Adam Schiff. I mean, Adam, Adam Schiff is a nutcake, and, and he currently is the person. Look. And, and he is currently the person most likely to be the senator from California because, because, he, can, because he can raise enough money from his left-wing cuckoos to run enough ads, and they're not stupid. They don't run in and say, hi, I am so totally radical, you'd be disgusted. You know, that's not how the game is played. We, we have to be, and Reagan was brilliant at this, and, and Trump is reasonably good at it, but Reagan was brilliant. We have to be able to articulate clearly and simply that, you know, if you don't want, you know, if, I mean, my, my view of the campaign this fall is simple. If you'd like to have another eight million illegal immigrants, you should vote for Biden. If you really like having gasoline too expensive and food too expensive, you should vote for Biden, excuse me. <coughs> if you like America looking weak in the world, you should vote for Biden. If you think it's great to have schools where nobody learns anything, you should, I mean, I think you've got to get it down to basic, simple choice. Well, remember, one of the great virtues that both Reagan and Trump had was they had lots of people who weren't smart enough in your terms, but they figured out how to buy the movie and they figured out how to watch The Apprentice. And in both cases, they figured out the job of the political leader is to articulate so clearly and so convincingly that the least sophisticated person in your district understands the choice on, on terms that are, that are real. And part of that is to be able to say, if you feel like you're in pain, here's why. Uh, now, I, I mean, my, my favorite current moment is the New York City school, which has kicked out all the kids in order to bring in illegal immigrants. The average American can understand that. I don't care how dumb you are. You can sort of figure out, okay, let me get this straight. School for American children, school for illegal immigrants. Gee, I wonder which one is better. Now, if they say to you, well, we really have to take care of the illegal immigrants, now you know you have a left-wing nutcake. Very, very briefly before, uh, the, last, before, the, before the last question, uh, the California Senate race came up. Do you have any views, Adam Schiff came up, any views on Steve Garvey, his candidacy? Yeah, I think Garvey actually, Steve Garvey has an opportunity to get in the runoff. And, and I look, I'm, I'm always looking for the pony. I actually have a hunch that California may now be such a mess that in fact there may actually well be a voter revolt by this fall on a whole range of things. But, you know, but, but what I do, what I do know, and this is why I'm, I'm thrilled that Steve Garvey's running, what I do know is if you don't have a candidate, you can't have a revolt. And all too often people say, well, we can't compete there. When we won, and this is in the book, when we won in 1994, we had candidates in 432 out of 435 districts. We ran everywhere, and the result was, for example, in downtown Chicago, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Danny Rostenkowski, lost to an unknown lawyer. And the reason he lost was not because the lawyer ran a great campaign, 
but the country had turned very sour on the Democrats. People walked in and said, okay, let me see. Unknown guy, Danny Rostenkowski, not him. Well, that left the unknown guy. But if that guy hadn't been on the ballot, he couldn't have won. So I am thrilled that Garvey is making the race. And I think anybody who can tell me today that Garvey doesn't have a shot in the general, I think misunderstands the level of unhappiness, the level of unrest, and the degree to which the Democratic nominee is likely to be a person who is wildly dishonest and wildly left-wing. Uh, and so it could be a really fun race. Very last question. As someone who knew him and worked with him, what do people today need to know about Ronald Reagan and his enduring impact? I think Reagan's greatest strength was that he thought about first principles very deeply, and he believed them. And he was then willing to articulate those principles, develop policies that would make those principles real, and have the courage to stand up against everybody else if he thought the principles were right and everybody else was wrong. As he once said, he didn't change from that speech in 1964, but one day the world came around. That took real patience, real patriotism, and real courage. Ladies and gentlemen, Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. This was Newt Gingrich's 10th speech at the Reagan Library since 2006. You can find and watch all of these programs on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.